Well, good morning, church. Hey, there's a lot going on around here. <laughs> so the whole place is uh, decorated for Vacation Bible School that starts, uh, actually, part of the mission trip starts this evening, but then uh, 160 children show up Monday morning bright and early with 95-plus volunteers. If you uh, haven't had the opportunity to serve in any capacity with Vacation Bible School, there is one area still that you could be a part of. One, I guess, I, maybe two, I said one is, would, would be prayer. That you'd be praying for all of those children, all of those families that are coming. But two, in the hallway, we supply food for the volunteers uh, during the morning for them to come and to keep their energy up. Try chasing around 160 children. You'll need some food too. It's a simple way for you to stop by and look at how you might be able to sign up and take one day or one portion of a day. It would make a difference in what's happening here. So check that out. Also, be praying for the uh, Reach St. Pete team that starts tonight. They're showing up there living at Eckerd College for the week as they serve here and throughout our community. But then you've got a Detroit uh, team coming, a Costa Rica team, an Ecuador team. There's people, uh, children, uh, youth, and adults all over the place this summer. So there's a lot going on. If you're new, welcome. My name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor, and we use our Bibles. So uh, we read our Bibles, we open our Bibles, we even get crazy and write in our Bibles sometimes. So if you've got your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, we're going to spend some time there today. We are in the final hours of Jesus' life. This is it. Last week we learned, looked at the first three of the six trials in Jesus' life. Three of them were religious, and the last three are Roman. And the charge that's been leveled against Jesus is blasphemy. And in the Jewish context, blasphemy is worthy of death. But the, there's a small problem here. That only works if the Jews were in a free society, and they're not. Rome runs the show. And under Roman law, blasphemy was not punishable by death. And so in order to kill Jesus, they have to morph the charges. They have to change the charges from blasphemy. They've got to change that to insurrection. They've got to morph that over to treason. And the key figure in all of this is a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. He's mentioned all throughout history, not just in your Bible. Sometimes I think when we read our Bibles and we come across historical figures, we think they're only mentioned there. That's not true. Pontius Pilate is mentioned all throughout of history. We have all sorts of writings on him. And whenever Pontius Pilate is written about in history, it's never good. I found that very interesting. There's never a yay Pontius Pilate moment. We've never seen that. Uh, but here, Pilate is the one, at least from a Roman authority standpoint, who signs the execution order and delivers Jesus over to be crucified. But here's the strange thing. If you've ever read this story in your Bible, sometimes when we look at Pilate, we see Pilate and we say he's sort of soft-handed or maybe he's sort of a vacillating, weak leader. It seems like that's the way the Bible paints him and, and shows him to us. But to be fair, that's not his M.O. at all. The historical picture of who Pontius Pilate was is he is a Roman governor. And to be a Roman governor, you don't get that job right out of high school. 
Like, just don't pick that up as like, hey, I'm just going to be, it's going to be a day job, and, and then I'll moonlight someplace else. No, this is a role you actually get appointed to, and you get appointed to it because you are a very seasoned and a very successful, and you are a very highly regarded military leader. That's how you get this position. In fact, historically, Pilate was well known for being very decisive, very successful, and very, very disciplined. But he was also known for being exceedingly cruel and, and for being almost like borderline tyrannical. And he was a vicious anti-Semite. He, he wasn't like, you know what, I don't care for the Jews. No, no, no. He hated the Jewish people. Any chance he could get to, to start something with them. And if something gets started, any chance he could get to kind of come in with a heavy hand and squash that revolt, he took it. Like, here's an example. Pilate decided at one point to take really large military shields, and he had the image of the emperor, Caesar, Tiberius, and he had them put on the front, put that image on the front of the shield, and then to go all throughout Jerusalem and set those shields up. Now, he knew what he was doing. Romans knew that you could get away with a lot of things in Jerusalem, but you could not put a graven image on an object and then put that object in the holy city of Jerusalem because the Jews would, let's say, not respond well. And so that's what he does. And sure enough, the Jewish people, they lost their minds. And so Pilate then had soldiers go into the crowds with swords drawn, prepared to kill every single person who opposed putting these shields in the city with Caesar's face on it. That's the kind of stuff he did. He's constantly picking at the Jews, knowing what he's doing, and he's sort of a bully. But the interesting part of this is also he was consistently under investigation by Rome. And he was under investigation for this constant, gratuitous instigation to violence against the Jews. Why? Because it always cost money. Because he had to hire people and pay things. And he was always spending gobs of money picking at and beating on the Jews. He was under the microscope. And the last thing that Pilate needed right here in our story was another Jewish uprising. Because he's under the microscope of Rome. He cannot withstand another one. And because of this constant badgering, the simplest thing could cause a riot within the city because everybody's on edge when Pilate's in town. And so all of this puts Pilate between a rock and a hard place. And with that as our context, let's look at Matthew 27, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. Early in the morning, this is Friday morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And so about 7 a.m., you've got um, Pilate. He's in the praetorium. He's in Antonius' fortress. He's there. He's maybe just waking up. Maybe he's sitting at breakfast, and he's greeted with a Jewish mob. And he thought it was going to be a beautiful morning, right? You get up. He's maybe having some great fruit. Things are going well so far. And then here comes the Jewish mob hauling Jesus, and he's like, what? could they possibly want now? 
And I want you to see what John's account says about this. I'll put it on the screen behind me. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace. Now the palace is also called the praetorium, or think headquarters, of the Roman governor. By now it was early in the morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So to be clear, the praetorium is attached to Antonius Fortress, and Antonius Fortress is attached to the Temple Mount, the holiest place in all Jewish society. So they're butted up, they share a wall, okay? And so that's where he was. And so whenever a large festival was about to happen in Jerusalem, Pilate would leave his seacoast home over in Caesarea Maritima, and he would travel to Jerusalem, and with him not only came his rule, with him not only came his reign, with him came another garrison of Roman soldiers. Why? He wanted to make sure that anybody who was showing up to this festival who might be thinking that they're going to rebel, that they would think twice. So it wouldn't be just one garrison in the fortress. He's bringing a second with him when he rolls into town. And so these religious leaders, they show up on the steps of the praetorium, but they don't want to go inside because they don't want to become unclean and they don't want to go through this process of becoming clean all over again in preparation for Passover. So instead, they stay outside, holler to Pilate, which I'm sure doesn't go well. Try going to your mom's house and telling your mom to come outside. You know, that does, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to get spanked still. So, you know, but that's what, and so Pilate gets up and he comes outside to them. Now, for me, here's the irony in all this. See if you find the irony here. These guys, they don't want to go inside the praetorium because it's going to make them ceremonially unclean for Passover. But these are the same guys who paid a bribe. Right? These are the same guys who organized a false arrest. They rounded up false witnesses. They accuse a guy of blasphemy falsely because they want to kill him. They conduct not one, but three illegal trials. They spit on him. These religious people mock him. They punch him in the face, and they put an innocent man in chains for three hours. But I can't step in the praetorium because I might be unclean. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Like, I read that, and I thought, what on God's green earth is going on? The stench of hypocrisy is all over this passage. And it made me wonder, and I didn't like this, is this me on some days as well? Striving for holiness in one area and living like hell in another. Telling everybody what they should be doing and doing whatever I want over here. Living like Jesus in front of my kids and family and living like whatever I want at work. On too many days, do we look like the religious leaders in our world? I didn't like that question. And John's account helps us see this interaction with a bit more detail than Matthew's account. And again, I'll put John 18 on the screen behind me. It says, So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? 
If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And so for Pilate, right here, things get serious. You can almost see the eye roll. You can almost see him going, oh, today was going so well. Until right here. Because what they're saying is, you had better join us in this or we're going to revolt. You better join us in this or things are going to get dicey around here. You're going to lose control around here. And so John says in uh, John chapter 18, verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, went back inside the praetorium, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So look at Matthew 27, verse 11. It says, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. So what happened was Jesus was outside the praetorium with everybody. Pilate goes back inside, brings Jesus back inside with him. It says, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Now, if you have the NIV, that's what it says. It says, you have said so. Actually, the, a stronger translation comes from the New American Standard, or even if you've got the English Standard Version, it says, it is as you say. That makes more sense, doesn't it? It is as you say. He is, he's acknowledging, yes. Now, it's interesting that Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? The reason that's interesting is because he wasn't accused by the religious leaders of being a king. They accused him of being the Messiah. They accused him of being the Christ. That's a religious issue. But the charges have morphed now. How do we know that? Well, in Luke 23, again, I'll put on the screens behind me, says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so Pilate has no interest in asking Jesus any questions at all about blasphemy. Pilate could care less about that. Pilate is not, is not concerned if Jesus is the Christ. Pilate wants to know, are you a king? Are, are, are you a king? Because if you're a king, you might be a threat to me. If you're a king, you might be a threat to Caesar. If you're a king, you might be a threat to all of Rome. But John's account shows us the dialogue that happens with Jesus here. And it says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responds with the classic statement, what is truth? Tell me that's that same question that's being asked today. When anytime you look at someone else, and you tell them something that they don't want to hear, the question is, that's your truth. And this is my truth. Well, that's not the definition of truth, right? Truth isn't one way for you and a different way for me. There's absolute truth. And he's saying here, you know what? What is truth? How can we really know? 
And then it says after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So in Matthew 27, look at verse 12. It says, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. Jesus was silent, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now, keep your hand in Matthew 27 and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. To Luke chapter 23. In Luke 23, as you can imagine, the governor has presided over lots of different court cases. Sort of what he does. He is used to people pleading for their life. He is used to people begging him for their life. But here's a presumably innocent Jewish rabbi getting accused by other Jewish rabbis and religious people of insurrection and treason, and Jesus doesn't say a word. And so Pilate, he's really struck by that. So what does he do? Well, according to Luke 23, he looks for a politically expedient way to get this whole situation away from him because he's currently in a lose-lose situation with Rome and the Jews. He's in real trouble. He's either going to appease the people he hates and kill an innocent man, or he's not going to do anything with Jesus. He's going to turn him loose, and it's going to cause a riot, and Rome's going to come after him. And so what's the loophole? How does he get out of this? That's Luke 23, verse 4. It says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. He was like, bingo. Perfect. Jesus is a Galilean, and Herod is a weirdo. And so he is from Herod's jurisdiction, and he's in town too. Now, don't get me wrong. Pilate uh, is not having any desire to advocate his authority to anyone unless it's politically expedient and beneficial for himself. That's the only way he's going to do this. And so this fifth trial, the, the second of the Romans, begins about 8 a.m., and it begins in front of a man by the name of Herod Antipater. Now, Herod Antipater is the son of Herod, crazy town Herod, the murder of babies Herod. So Herod is not a fan of Jesus. His son, Herod Antipater, also not a fan of Jesus. Herod Antipater is the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. So none of them are like, yay, Jesus. That's not how this is rolling out. And so right here in verse 23, verse 8, it says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Well, that's weird. Because for a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. So Herod Antipater, he's not interested in truth. He's not interested in uh, the injustice of imprisoning a, 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 an innocent man. Herod wants a magic trick. Herod wants a show. He wants entertainment. Verse 9, it says, He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Wouldn't speak to him. 
The chief priests and the Pharisees of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. Okay, so now flip back to Matthew 27. When we left Pilate, Pilate was thinking, life is great again. I'll send him over to Herod. Sure, Herod's a little strange in the head, so who knows what that guy's going to do. Hopefully what's going to do is he's going to kill him just like he killed John the Baptist. That would be great. Her um, everybody gets what they want. I don't have to do it. The Jews get what they want. Herod can be Herod. No harm, no foul. Let's get back to breakfast. All right, that's what he's thinking. But Matthew 27, 19 will show us the sixth and final trial. Pilate gets word Jesus is on his way back, and you know he rolled his eyes. Oh, seriously? He's coming back? You know, you know he's, he's thinking that. He's probably starting to get stressed again. But before it starts, Pilate's wife has something to say. Verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Guys, listen to your wives. <laughs> listen, they are usually right, you know. I know you, you say you know that, I'm telling you. Uh, maybe that's not the point here, but it is sort of a point, you know. And so sure enough, here comes the crowd. And here comes Jesus, but Pilate has one more trick up his sleeve, one more offer that they're not going to be able to refuse. That's verse 15. So go back up to 15. It says, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. So the way that custom worked was he would go to the crowd and say, Who that's currently in prison do you want set free? That's the custom. But here, what he's going to do is he's going to change the offer to benefit himself. That's verse 16. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. And so instead of letting them choose, what they did was Pilate decided, I'm going to force the people to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. And so he set Jesus up against a known terrorist a well-known rebel, murderer, and insurrectionist. So Barabbas is a part of a group that would hide daggers up their sleeves and move through the marketplace and stab Jewish people. He generally stabbed Jewish people because he was after Jewish people who were bringing aid, who were assisting the Romans. So he didn't like the Romans, and he'll always shank one of them, but that could lead to a whole garrison coming after you. But you could sneak up and stab, say, religious leaders who are lining their pockets with money from Rome, who are aiding and abetting Rome, and we don't want that. So we've got that guy or Jesus. So the offer is release a guy who threatens your political or your spiritual position or release a guy who's going to stab you, who's, gonna, who's threatening your physical safety. So in Pilate's mind, he has the perfect solution. I've got an assassin who's not afraid to sneak around and stab people just like you religious leaders, and I've got Jesus. Which one do you want? He's like, I'm golden. I've got it set. So look at verse 17. 
So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want to release to you? Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? So you want the guy who wants to kill you, or do you want a religious teacher from Galilee? That seems like an easy choice, especially since verse 18 says, For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Even Pilate knows what's going on. These religious people, they're not that smooth. Like, it's not like they've duped anybody. Even Pilate knows what's happening, what they're up to. But, and it's a big one, in verse 20, the plan backfires because the chief priests and the elders, they do the unthinkable. It says, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, the terrorist, and to have Jesus executed. And Pilate, he doesn't know what to do with that. You know what they should have added in here? He, Pilate probably was like, uh, I'm sorry, what? Right? Because according to the scripture, he asked them again. That's verse 21. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they said. Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, over and over again. And my thought was, especially after being in Israel recently, I know you're probably tired of hearing this, but again, two things that changed for me was proximity and perspective. You know what, what's happening here? They're on the steps outside the praetorium. Where do you think Barabbas is being housed? In the praetorium. He's literally right there. He can hear what's going on. So what's Barabbas thinking and feeling right now? Right, so he hears the crowd screaming. He knows what's going on. He knows that a prisoner gets released. He knows that he's up against Jesus. And he's like, well, okay. You know, I guess I'm going to be killed because who's going to be able to beat Jesus? And what is he hearing? He's hearing the crowd screaming and yelling and getting louder and louder. Then what he hears is, Barabbas, Barabbas. He hears his name. And what's the next thing he hears? Crucify him, crucify him. And he's like, oh, darn. Right, you know? And so when that jailer shows up at his cell, because it's just minutes to get to the jail. It's very, very close to the entrance. He gets up there, and he opens it up, and he's thinking, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to die. And instead of him dying, they take him out before Pilate and before the crowd. And Pilate doesn't sentence him to death. Pilate sets him free. When Pilate says that to Barabbas, what do you think Barabbas said? I'm sorry, what? Um, what's happening now? Are, are we sure about this? Do we need to check in with anybody else? Like, what's going, like, are you kidding me? But it makes you wonder if Barabbas is the very first person to ever truly experience the grace of God. When he realizes that there's three crosses set up to crucify people that day. When he realizes that this Jesus died literally on the cross that was meant for him. That was his cross. He was headed to that cross. He knew he was headed to that cross. 
And the cross that was meant to bear the body of Barabbas ends up bearing the body of our Savior with Barabbas knowing it all along. That cross, that was supposed to hold you. That cross, supposed to hold me, held Jesus. We're the terrorists. We're Barabbas. You talk about an incredible picture. And then comes verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he replied. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. That's an exclamation point. They shouted that. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole company of soldiers around him, two full garrisons. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Then they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Over the years, I think we've lost the understanding of what flogging means. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, that's hard to watch, is it not? I don't know if I should be watching this or not. I got my hand over my face, but I don't know. It is super uncomfortable. If it doesn't bring you to tears, you might need counseling because that is a messed up section. And so when you see that, you realize it is a devastatingly painful and long process. It's actually what's called a half-death. Because what the Romans would do is they would flog you until you were about to die. And then they would bring in nurses to uh, aid your wounds, to give you water, to bring you back to life just enough so they could do it again. And they would do that over and over and over again. It's a half death because they did it until you begged them to kill you. You would beg them to kill you. That leather strap would literally rip the skin off the person being bitten. Beaten. It was awful, awful project, uh, process. So they scourged Jesus and they handed him over for crucifixion. Church, the innocent Savior of the world, falsely accused, sentenced to death, has been awake for more than 24 hours at this point, has endured six different trials. He has been abandoned by his friends. He has been punched, spit on, mocked, scourged, ridiculed, made fun of by the religious people as well as by the pagans alike. And he set it to a cross and he's going to be there by noon. But make no mistake, Jesus is not a martyr. Jesus is not a martyr. He is not some 
religious guy who died for his faith. That would minimize the issue and it would really miss the point completely. Jesus is not a martyr. He's more than that. He is so much more than that. He is the savior of the world. That's not a martyr. That's the savior of the world. See, what Jesus did is he willingly died to pay the price for our sins. He drank the cup I was supposed to drink. He took the wrath that's due me, and all of it was according to the plan of God. So don't miss the sovereignty of God here. Don't miss the providence in all of this. Jesus was not ambushed. Jesus was not set up, regardless of what they thought. Peter even knew that, because in Acts chapter 22, this is what Peter says to everyone listening. He writes, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, you saw it, you heard it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear that? That's a predetermined plan. That's the foreknowledge of God. He's not a martyr. The clues, it's interesting when people tell me, Kevin, you know, I really don't like the Old Testament. I don't really ever read the Old Testament. You're missing Jesus on every page. Because there is clues all throughout. Clues like Isaiah 50, verse 6, that talk directly to this morning. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Are you kidding me? That's Old Testament. Or like Isaiah 53. It's a longer passage, but you know this passage. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds not mine by his wounds we are healed we are all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to our own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Are you kidding me? Jesus is all over your Old Testament, and not reading it means you don't know about Jesus. He is so much more than a martyr. He's not a martyr. He's the very savior of the world. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus Christ is the hero of the text, not just for like this much, for all of it. Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin that we should have paid. Church, what a Savior. That's a Savior. And do you know why he did this? 
He did this because God so loved the world. That's why he did this. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. That's why, church, we have no category for this kind of love. I don't know anything like this anywhere at all. And so the question is, what's the takeaway this morning? What should we be thinking about during communion? I think Hebrews 12 should stand for itself. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you and I will not grow weary and lose heart. Oh, what a Savior. Church, there are passages in the Bible that challenge us intellectually. And then there are passages where we just behold the beauties of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where we just need to stop and say thank you. We just need to stop and go, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think this is one of those passages. 